The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good afternoon and welcome to One Hour at a Time. Recovery begins with education and host Mary Woods is here to educate individuals and families and provide support through the recovery process. Now here's your host, Mary Woods. Good afternoon everyone, this is Mary Woods and I'm your host today. Um, our topic today is treatment and recovery enhancement for sustained, for sustained recovery with um, substance use disorders. And I'm very pleased to introduce to you Dr. Andrea Barthwell, who is the founder and chief executive officer of the global healthcare and policy consulting firm, EM Global LLC, and she's also the director at Two Dreams Outer Banks Treatment Center in um, North Carolina, Dr. Barthwell? Yes, on the Outer Banks of North Carolina. Hi, Mary. Hi, how are you? I'm doing well today. Thanks for having me. Oh, I'm, it's always a pleasure to talk with you. Um, Dr. Barthwell has, was also um, nominated by President George W. Bush and um, confirmed by the United States Senate to serve as Deputy Director for Demand Reduction in the Office of National Drug Control Policy from January 2002 to January 2004, which is where I first met you. And um, I'm very pleased to have you on the show. I know that you are interested in many um, different types of things that uh, surround our profession, but treatment and recovery enhancement for sustained recovery, that's, that's a different way of um, talking about recovery for uh, recovery enhancement for sustained recovery. Can you talk with us about that? Yes, I can, but before we start, I'd love to give a big shout-out to the patients on the uh, Outer Banks at the Two Dreams Outer Banks Treatment Program. They're listening in today. So hi, everybody, and I look forward to seeing you all soon. Um, So just to give you a little bit of background, um, I had worked in the field of addiction medicine all of my life before getting the call to policy service in the uh, drug czar's office under uh, George W. Bush. And as a result of that exposure, I get focused a lot on some of the policy issues, and I think that's one of the places where I met you, Mary, in looking at how we advocate for treatment services to get people well. And one of the things that was very alarming to me that I had not really focused a lot on was the National Household Survey on Drug Use and Health, which showed us exactly from a phone survey how many people had a problem with drugs but didn't know it had a problems with drugs or alcohol, knew it but had not sought services, and that was about 5% of the people surveyed, had a problem with drugs or alcohol, knew it and sought services, but for one reason or another had not been able to get services, and that accounted for about 2% of the people surveyed. And then the last batch, which was about 17% of people, had a problem, knew it, sought services and received it, but only about 17% of people who had a problem and knew it and sought services were getting services. And when we paired that finding with um, stuff that had come out of the Center for Substance Abuse Services that looked at how many people are successful when they actually enter treatment, 
we had national data over a 30-year period that showed only about 25 to 31% of people who entered treatment ended it with an improved diagnosis. So about a third of the people who got into treatment did better. And at the end of the year, only half of them were still doing well. And there was a national initiative at that time to look at how the effect of treatment eroded over time. So how fast did an episode of treatment start going away in your life if you didn't do things to sustain the gains made in treatment? So we as a government invested a lot of money to find out how long it took you to start to relapse after treatment, and I thought there was something terribly wrong with looking at it in that way. So they were doing a study to look at how the treatment effect eroded over time, and I thought what we should really be doing is looking at what people need to take out of treatment that sustain them and allow them to build on the gains made in treatment. And there was some uh, work that had been done uh, by uh, Norm Hoffman that looked at what did you have to do with somebody to get them to a point where they were able to take care of themselves after treatment of sort of the threshold effect? How did you get them to walk over the threshold from being uh, in trouble with their substances to, to doing better? And that threshold seemed to relate to about a 12-week exposure to treatment. So I combined all of my... Uh, sort of clinical experience and this policy and research stuff that I was being uh, exposed to and realized that if we gave people a concentrated intensive treatment event up front and looked for some of the indices that said that they were in a place where they were going to be able to sustain the the gains made in treatment, if we kept them until they achieved that and then let them go, with a set of strategically applied skills that we wouldn't have to see 50% of people who enter treatment relapsing within one year of leaving treatment. And that was where the whole concept was born. Now, if you added those numbers up that I was talking about, the 17 and the 2 and the 65, uh, 5%, about 67% of people in this country who have a problem don't recognize it yet. So there's a lot of work that we have yet to do. I call them the, the, the uh, knowledge gap or the information gap. They, we have to find ways to bring information to them to let them know that they have a problem and create a desire in them to re- remedy it and then find the means to do so and then do a better job of treating them once we get there. But if 67% of the people who have this problem don't know it, we have to figure out ways to get them over that information gap. And one of the strategic policy initiatives behind that was screening, brief intervention, and referral to treatment, looking at how we took information to people who weren't even thinking about getting better. So in sort of one foul swoop, we were able to address a lot of the policy issues and programmatic issues to start to improve treatment in this country. Because you and I both know, you work in an exquisitely applied set of services, you and I both know that we have the knowledge now to get everybody into recovery, but and, and it, if the Affordable Care Act does what it's supposed to do, people will now have the means, but we still reach a very small percentage of people who need our help. Well, and I think to speak to your um, compliment about our treatment services, you know, there's a knowledge gap not only with the general public, but there's a knowledge gap within our profession as well um, that, that needs to be bridged. Well, and, you know, I I thank you for what you do for trying to bring that information to other professionals and to the family members of people that we serve who um, are suffering 
and then from people who have this diagnosis who, you know, have this knowledge or information gap about their own situation and circumstances. Um, I, I know um, Dr. Barthel and I have had a few discussions um, offline and the importance of um, families and the importance of uh, focusing, as you're saying, on how people sustain recovery, that's not the general mindset of, of most um, mainstream treatment. I think it's improving, but I still don't think it's the majority. Um, we're still based on illness. We're still based on deficits um, and what you're doing wrong as opposed to what you're doing right. <laughs> from my perspective, but you get around more, so maybe maybe you have a brighter perspective than I do. No, it's still pretty dismal. You talk about we're focused on the illness and then episodes of care, and you know Tom McClellan, who followed me in the Office of National Drug Control Policy as a deputy director, talked about in a lot of his research career how uh, this is a disease where we provide episodes of care, episodic care, but it's a chronic disease, so it makes as much sense um, as taking a person with diabetes, for example, who has a chronic disease, and then only treating their diabetic comas with uh, visits to the emergency room, stabilizing their blood sugar, and sending them forth with the command to go forth and, you know, uh, relapse no more, but none of the t- school, uh, skills or tools to address that. Or if you have somebody with hypertension, you treat a hypertensive crisis, but don't give them chronic medication in between. And, you know, when I talk about chronic medication and care, I'm talking about those services that would allow somebody to uh, continue to build on their recovery, the recovery enhancement skills. And it's not all medication. You know, we do have some medications that we can use acutely in the care of people with this disorder, but much of what people have to do um, involves uh, 12-step self-help, And research studies have shown us that people who go to three or more meetings a week after treatment do better than those who go to one or two, and they do better than those who go to none. So um, I've watched a proliferation of treatment programs in this space that want to market themselves to people who don't want to have anything to do with 12-step recovery and think, what a travesty, that um, you would take a disease such as this, which is life-threatening if left untreated, and offer to market it to people who have the disorder and therefore are not clearly thinking, and uh, market yourself to them around a bias that they have around helping themselves. And this is the basis of how you intend to help people is by slotting them into a track where we clearly know they don't do as well as people who would go to 12-step. And we focused on... 12-step facilitation in our programs. Like we, we, and, I, and I actually have focused my efforts on people who are reluctant to recover, people who have had uh, multiple episodes of care before, who have not been able to give themselves the gift of recovery. And we want to understand why, why you're not interested in doing something that research literature has shown us will be very helpful to you in terms of sustaining your recovery. And we want to remove the barriers to admission for that for people who come into our programming. And so we will work with people who have a bias against it, but we want to understand what their bias is about and see if we can remove that. Because while they're under our care and in that sort of structured and supportive environment and out of the complex psychosocial context that they're using while they're in treatment, you know, there aren't as many... um, 
uh, triggers for their using as there would be if they were at home. But they've got to be able to live independently and on their own after they leave. And so you've got to have a set of tools that you take out of treatment with you that are going to be able to support your recovery. And we used to talk about writing discharge plans. So as if once you left treatment, it's all over and you're being discharged back to life. We actually write recovery enhancement plans, which look at what we found are the most important seven variables to recovery, looking at how you continue to build on the gains made in those seven areas. And I can talk to you about those seven areas if, if you want, if that makes sense. If I, we can talk about anything else you want. I think it would be great. Okay. I think it would be great, but I think it's time to go for a commercial. And we'll be right back uh, with Dr. Barthol talking about the recovery enhancement domains after this commercial. We'll be right back. listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Every day we hear about health and nutrition, but it's also confusing. We think we're eating the foods that are good for us, like nuts and berries, and avoiding things that supposedly aren't, like gluten. Yet we still wind up craving poor foods, taking medications, sleeping poorly, and gaining more weight than ever. What could be underlying these health problems? Get the answers. Tune in to Nutritional Wellness Beyond Food with host Lori Hibbard, Wednesdays at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time on Voice America Health & Wellness. Find out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back to One Hour at a Time. This is Mary Woods, and I'm your host today. Um, our guest is Dr. Andrea Barthwell, who's an extremely accomplished woman. And addition, in addition to everything that I shared about her in our first segment, um, Dr. Barthwell received a Bachelor of Arts degree in psychology from Wesleyan University and a Doctor of Medicine from the University of Michigan Medical School. Dr. Barthwell is past president of the American Society of Addiction Medicine in 2003. Dr. Barthwell received the Betty Ford Award given by the Association for Medical Education and Research in Substance Abuse. And Dr. Barthwell, we were talking about the different domains for recovery and enhancement, how if people... Um, 
are able to accomplish a certain amount of um, skills in these areas that they're able to sustain recovery. And you were going to share with us what these domains are. Right, and I, I don't mean this for anybody from ASAM who might be listening to take the place of the six dimensions that we evaluate to determine what level of care someone needs to start treatment in, and they are acute intoxication or withdrawal. So if you're at the highest level of need there, you'd actually go through detox. Or the biomedical problems, conditions, and complications which come from exposure so that if you are acutely ill, you might need to go into a medical or surgical bed before you enter treatment. Or the emotional behavior conditions or complications that accompany addiction or precede addiction. Whereas if you had the most severe uh, finding there, you would go into a psychiatric facility, a locked psych facility, so that you would have been judged as being an imminent threat to you or others. Or as ASAM reviews, one's treatment acceptance or resistance, one's relapse potential, and then the recovery environment, which supports them, and they use those sort of clinically directed things to determine whether you can make it in outpatient or intensive outpatient or if you need a residential facility of some sort or 24 hours a day structured living in order to make it in. So these seven domains that I'm talking about don't take the place of ASAM, but they are what we evaluate on the Outer Banks to determine how someone's doing and then actually to drive and direct services toward them. And before I do, I gave a shout-out to all the patients on the Outer Banks who I know are listening. I also want to shout-out to the Two Dreams Outer Banks staff and the staff at Two Dreams Chicago, who without them, none of this would be possible for me. They really make it happen, and they have turned my dream of being able to provide this evidence and experience-based treatment into a reality where we're able to provide services to people. And, again, we focus on people who are reluctant to recover, and we try to move the, remove those barriers. So we're normally looking at people who have either a very complicated course or they have had multiple treatment episodes, and um, for whatever reason they've relapsed after every treatment engagement. Now, I'd love to take people who've never had treatment before because I I like to think that we can start people out the right way. But, again, we do focus on people who typically have had treatment episodes and not have been able to give themselves their gift of recovery. So here are my seven keys to recovery. The first is abstinence. (laughs) I just don't think that you can have a clearing of your mental state if you're making a decision that you're going to keep using mood or mind-altering chemicals, no matter their form. Now, that doesn't mean that from time to time you won't need to use mood or mind-altering chemicals, what we call central nervous system stimulating drugs, medications, as medications, but they have to be used under very strict guidance of medical personnel and with an awareness that people who, for example, need a pain medication who don't have a history of addiction have a risk that is inherent to the medications they're being exposed to and that it might trigger something and it might, they might then develop a disorder because of being exposed to pain medicine, but that people who have a history or a tremendous genetic loading with this disorder bring to them their you know, physician-patient relationship risk that is inherent to them and that we prescribers have to approach them with a tremendous amount of different sensitivity 
because of the risk that's inherent to them. And somebody who has had an addiction who then develops a pain problem, they're in the overlap of those two categories, have risk that's inherent to them and that's inherent to the medications that they're potentially going to be exposed to. And that double whammy, more than additive risk, has to be managed by the healthcare delivery system. So the first is abstinence. You're not, it's a non-starter if we don't get you off the drugs. And, you know, I'll put as a special aside medication-assisted therapy because there are some patients who um, have used chronic opioids who may not be able to make it without a program of methadone or buprenorphine, and I am not indicting those medications, but I think that, that patient selection to make that lifelong decision, because Making a decision to go on medication-assisted therapy is not a short-term decision. It generally is going to be a lifetime, life-term decision for 85% of the patients who start. They're probably going to be in their life on it. Making that decision to start medication-assisted therapy has to be done with a lot of careful consideration. The second is peer support. And I think um, through one's engagement with one's peer, we can help you overcome that terminal disease, terminal uniqueness, um, and begin to allow you to experience acceptance of yourself because you get the acceptance of your peers. And it begins to allow you to get a flavor for what's worked for others so that you can open your consideration up to expand your repertoire of coping skills. And what we have found over time is that people who come to treatment have a very narrow repertoire in terms of how they describe their feelings and in terms of what they use to cope with that. The third thing is very important is professional guidance. There are going to be things that um, you can't solve yourself, your peers can't help you solve, and because of an inability to have objective view and or the critical knowledge required, you're going to have to turn to professionals to get their advice. And a big sign for me that one is moving down a continuum towards the ability to engage in self-directed care is their ability to turn something over to the care of a professional, take that advice, and follow through on that advice that's been given. That, that tells me a lot about where somebody is in terms of their recovery pathway and before someone's discharged to self-directed care, I need to know that they know how to consult appropriately so that if they're away from professional guidance, that they, they know what's going on when they need to turn back towards pulling a professional into getting the professional advice. Um, the fourth thing for me is a medication review. We are in an age where um, I think you've said it to me in other conversations, Mary, where a number of people who are prescribers think they can fill the hole in one's soul by writing a prescription. And so I rarely see people who are, um, have you know, gone through an addictive process without having seen somebody where a prescription has been written for them. And I always review what medication someone's been on historically and what they're on now because we need to um, make sure that there's not too much of something being given or not enough of something that's being given. And I know that a lot of times when prescribers are responding to the signs and symptoms that a patient presents with and they're asking for a prescription relief to those things, they're going to be given that prescriber's best guess at what's going to treat those signs and symptoms. But if they're being caused by the drugs, 
and they're not living in that person's central nervous system, not living in that person's brain, the medications that are prescribed probably are going to not have much value when you get the person off the drugs. So if somebody presents with um, insomnia and they don't tell you that they take their friend's Ritalin on a daily basis and you try to respond to the insomnia, you're going to be prescribing something that's not needed when they stop taking the Ritalin. Do you get what I'm saying? I sure do. Yeah. So I think it is essential that we do a medication review when patients come in to find out what's been prescribed, what they ask for it for, and if it has a place in their current management. The fifth thing is, and there five and six go together, exercise and nutrition. Um, there are all kinds of nutritional deficits that have to be corrected when one stops using their chemical of choice. People who are on marijuana get the munchies and eat mindlessly and carry fat laden with THC, and as they're releasing the fat, the THC is being released back into their system, so we want to do things that helps to strip them of this unnecessary fat. You know, there are people who have the beer belly. There are people who are on stimulants like Adderall or cocaine who are under uh, nutrition. People who are taking opioids lose their appetite or vomit and don't eat right. So we have to look at what they've been taking and then try to prescribe whole foods, very, uh, you know, not out of a bottle can or a, a, a bag to them in its most elemental form to try to return them to whole health. And that is paired with exercise because this drug addiction, drug use, alcohol use is a very passive form of recreation. So we need to get people moving again, both to get the stuff out of their system, but also to, you know, rebuild the muscles that have been stripped of their vitality because they've been passively engaging in recreation. And we try to get people moving in um, a lot of ways so that they're getting two to three engagements a day and their recreation becomes just more active. You know, we, we have people walk to, to get their lunch, uh, doing things that we don't normally do in a very mobile society when we sit in cars all the time. The last essential element to uh, recovery, I think, is ritual. And we expose people to a very structured schedule, which starts to help them heal. And people on the Outer Banks will tell you, when they start following our schedule, they start getting better whether they want to or not because there is something that comes from just being exposed to a structure. And that ritual also includes writing, journaling, yoga, um, 12-step meetings, reading, and meditation. It's everything that you do on a daily basis. And what I ask patients to do as they're getting ready to be discharged is what are the things that we did on a daily basis helped you most? And pick three to five of those things to put in your schedule. And if you choose to not do it, you have to ask yourself, why are you going to substitute something in its place that wasn't as important to your recovery as it seemed to be when you were leaving treatment? So those are our seven principles or seven um, areas that we look to in order to create an opportunity for recovery. You know, I think um, as you're listing all those things, it seems like common sense, but um, most people and I think most uh, programs undervalue some of those um, 
domains. And I, and I think that, that it's important for all of our listeners to understand that there's no magic bullet for recovery. It requires um, a lifestyle change because people who have substance use disorders or people who have mental illness have to learn to cope with the symptoms of their illness throughout their lifetime, just as Dr. Barthwell was saying, somebody with diabetes or hypertension or, or asthma. And um, we'll be right back after this next commercial to talk um, more about recovery with Dr. Barthwell. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. You read about it in health news every day. Cancer rates are going up. Obesity in the U.S. is on the rise. Heart disease and diabetes are top killers every year. We can follow the advice of our doctor, but cravings persist. Weight goes up and energy is still down. It doesn't have to be like this. Tune in for Body Balance Talk with your host, Jeannie Schmidt, along with Lucy and Madeline. You'll learn how you can work with your body to feel better and look better, too. Body Balance Talk airs live every Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Health and Wellness. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everyone, to One Hour at a Time. This is Mary Woods, and our guest today is Dr. Andrea Barthwell, who is the founder and chief executive officer of the global health care and policy consulting firm, EM Global LLC. She's also the director of Two Dreams Outer Banks Treatment Center, and there's also a Two Dreams in Chicago. Right, Dr. Barthwell? Yes, we do. We've just opened our outpatient and intensive outpatient there. Right. And, um, you know, it's so great to just be talking about recovery because, you know, um, a very wise person once told me that somebody needs to put as much effort into their recovery as they did their addiction or their substance use disorder. So if you're willing to go to any length to have a drink or a drug, you've got to be willing to go to any length for your recovery. And, and I think sometimes people think, well, gee, if I just stop using, I'm in recovery. And, and so 
I think recovery occurs on a continuum, and I'd like to uh, spend some time talking about your thoughts on that in terms of abstinence and, and is sobriety the same thing as recovery, and, and do, do people go through different stages of recovery? Right. Um, so one of the first things that um, I draw your attention back to is that of these seven elements that we focus on in treatment, and a lot of people will tell you that treatment is the place where you figure out that you have the diagnosis, and then everything that happens after that is around building your recovery. So, you know, you get, uh, you dry out in detox, you develop a little bit of sustained abstinence, and uh, your relationship to cravings and uh, sort of an immediate need to use changes while you're in treatment and you get a little bit of perspective on what your disease is like and in treatment, ideally, if you're going to follow the NIDA recommendations, which is, you know, when you need residential rehab, when you've gone so far down the scale that you need residential rehab to, to you know, cobble to get together some days of abstinence, you're generally going to need to be there for 12 weeks. You can begin to get your arm around the things that were going on with you when you know before you used, and some of the um, relationship issues that happened as a result of your using, and start to you know build and repair your relationships with those who are going to be important to you for peer support, and also important to you in terms of your family of origin and friends that you had that preceded your addiction, and then. Um, after having walked that walk for a very long time, um, you can start to experience recovery and then mature recovery. Um, so abstinence is when you stop using, and um, facilitated abstinence and um, moving towards recovery it can happen in treatment whether you only get 28 days or you're fortunate enough to be there for three months and then go into other kinds of residential level of care that give you sustained support to build on the gains made in treatment doesn't really matter. What you're looking for is what does it look like when you start to move into recovery. And for us, the way we've defined it is mental peace, physical well-being, and personal productivity. So mental peace physical well-being, and personal productivity. And those are the three goals of treatment, three dream, two dreams. And you'll recognize that I haven't said anything about abstinence or recovery in that because these are markers for recovery, mental peace, physical well-being, and personal productivity. And it takes time to put those things together. And I, uh, you know, have recommended people who leave us to go into sort of extended residential care and, uh, you know, I had a guy who, let's say he was an engineer. He had a profession. And I advised him not to go back into engineering because figuring out whether the bridge would stand up or not isn't as important as figuring out how you live in this world. So go get a job where you're uh, waiting tables so that you don't have to uh, put so much effort of, you know, your heart and head into figuring out how bridges stand up. Let's put that effort into the thing that's most important on this planet, and that's you. So do something that may be more menial, not, not meaningless, but more menial, so that, so that the, whatever energy you have left, you can put into helping yourself recover. And your, your friend was right. Let's, ha- let's see 
to assess as a your level of commitment to your recovery that you will go to any length to get it the same way that you went to any length to get your drug or alcohol. But for me, that is uh, just an assessment of where somebody is and how much they want it. It is not a requirement because the biological drive that you experience when you're using drugs and alcohol that tells you if you don't use, you'll die is a survival drive. And people don't have a survival drive for recovery when they first come out of treatment. So I'm, I don't want to measure them against the effort that they put into getting drugs and alcohol because that's a survival drive that they're responding to. You will start to see that that survival, that, that survival drive will build over time into a crescendo and then it settles down into a very quiet way of living in a new way. But the survival drive that drives you to go to any length to get drugs or alcohol is different than the way in which you live when you've achieved a mature recovery. And that survival drive is expressed um, in a number of things that were expressed in the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of the American Psychiatric Association, which describes the criteria of substance use disorders. So the person has... Time spent is more than, than spent on other kinds of activities, and time is lost. You know, you go to stop by the bar on the way home from work on your payday, and you end up spending more time than you imagine that you would. And, and instead of having one or two drinks, you drink all night long and set it up for everybody else, and you spend all of your paycheck, and you come home with no money. So time spent and time lost. There's a loss of control, which speaks to an impairment over an impulse control, paired with a desire on, 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 in sometimes, in some instances, with a, a desire to control how much one uses, but an inability to do so. There is a failure to fulfill major life requirements. So that's a sign of a person's altered response reward response and a change in their the motivational priorities in their life. So a, a mom with a new baby wants to spend time with that new baby because when it looks at you and smiles, there's such a, a return or reward from that. But a mom with a new baby with an addiction will give that up to use her drugs. She'll give that up. So there's an altered reward response and a change in the motivational priorities in somebody's life. So there's a failure to fulfill major life roles. The student stops spending time studying and, you know, doesn't review, review uh, the, the reward, the A on the test as reward enough for being in college. They're spending all their time with their friends drinking to excess or smoking marijuana. Use despite consequences and use despite knowledge that is harmful to you. There is an impaired impulse control again. And then hazardous use. Um, it's more than a simple pursuit of pleasure. It's using when you know that it could be dangerous for you or other people, getting behind the wheel of the car and driving. And then craving, tolerance, and withdrawal, sort of the biological indices. And this craving, this craving, I, I always talk about craving as being an opportunistic disease. So the closer you are to your last use, the more likely you will have craving at a high frequency and a high intensity. So if we in treatment can stretch out the time between your last use and now, 
we'll be able to get at least a better handle for you on those biological indices. And then you'll also learn how to pair that craving with a new behavior. And when you come into treatment, craving is paired with using. You crave, you use. But after you've been in treatment, you may pair a craving with picking up the phone and calling your sponsor and talking about it. So we want to pair that to new behaviors because we know that when you first come into treatment, craving can't be extinguished except with using but we can find new ways for you to extinguish that biological drive. So abstinence is important, um, and recovery is important. And there was, a, there was a NIDA study that was once done where they went out and interviewed um, by a guy named McAuliffe, I think, out of Boston, out of your area of the country, who went out and looked at... Um, uh, individuals who had long-standing recovery, 10 years or more. And there were some very, very common um, um, denominators in those individuals. They had an acceptance of their story. They could tell their story uh, without a lot of the emotion that was attached to it, and they knew that that was what was happened, that had happened to them, that it, and it defined what had happened to them, but it didn't define them. Um, they were able to, um, they were generally driven to do something that supported other people gaining recovery. So whether it was through their 12-step work or whether they were attracted to, to be in treatment, um, they were doing things and it organized their life around helping other people to recovery. They um, were able to have a variety of friends, and they weren't all people who were in the program, but the people that were their friends knew them. So they were engaging in that behavior that I talk about, connecting with people on an emotional level, and they were able to to be themselves with their friends and talk about their um, being in recovery, but not letting that um, define only who they were with. And um, they were able to be honest and open with the people that they were um, uh, in uh, friends with. They were free of all drugs and alcohol. So they were making a decision not to use, even for quasi-medical reasons. Um, and they had developed well-learned habits of avoiding dangerous dangers that would expose them to chemicals. So they didn't go to places or around people or around things where they would be exposed to their risk. They had these ample social networks with solid, intimate relationships within them. And they listed a, an array of healthy recreation and relaxation activities. So if I were to ask you now, Mary, what are the three things that bring you most pleasure? You'd be able to tell me three things that you do that bring you pleasure. And people who have mature recovery can name three to five things that bring them pleasure. If our listeners can't, they need to look at that. Um, they had employment and career development that they'd worked on, and they had a philosophy that drove their life. Now, many of them, the philosophy of life was found in the pages of their 12-step, um, but they could actually tell you what led their decision-making. They, uh, they also had an acceptance of their past. That was what defined their re- mature recovery. And in treatment... No, I'm sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, no, I was just thinking about some of the people I know that have mature recovery, and um, that's you're describing them. Yeah, yeah, exactly. They, uh, you know, and these these 
folks that they interviewed that had, had had 10 years of recovery all had these things in common. They were abstinent. They were free of all drugs and didn't seek drugs for quasi-legitimate reasons. They had well-learned habits to avoid dangers and ample social networks with solid, intimate relationships. And they weren't all networks within 12-step recovery, but they all shared intimacy with people that they were close to. They had healthy recreation and relaxation, and they had good employment and career development. They actually thought about what they wanted to do, and many of them had purpose themselves towards helping other people recovery. They had a philosophy of life which drove their decision-making. They had key activities or interests that they engaged in, and they had an acceptance of the past. And in between that, so in between abstinence and this mature recovery is this, this phase that we describe. You're coming in, looking in, looking out phases. Coming in is where you stop use. Looking inward is when you acknowledge your addiction. That happens sort of intellectually. You learn what it is and you see how, it, how you have it and then you commit to recovery. And there is that, that gap between the six inches between the brain and the heart, which is where you go from acknowledging, which is an intellectual process, to committing, which is a heartfelt process. So you go from knowing to feeling and then you look around and reduce or eliminate the inducements to use. And so your, the, your recovery is measured by, so I, had a, I had a guy who was, I saw through the treatment okay. alternative. We, we need to take a break, okay. and then we'll come right back with your example. Sorry to interrupt, but um, time for a commercial break, and we'll be right back. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Every day, you hear so much about different aspects of the health and wellness field. One day, you hear one thing, and the next day, you hear something that contradicts what you heard the day before. How do you know what's right? Try tuning in to The Cutting Edge of Health and Wellness today with Dr. Neil Nathan and Dr. Jacob Teitelbaum. Our goal is to educate and explore this field with guest experts in order to help you take control of your health and well-being. Listen Fridays at 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Health and Wellness. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Helping you make informed decisions for your life. This is Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. 
Welcome back, everyone. This is Mary Woods, and we have the pleasure today of talking with Dr. Andrea Barthwell about recovery enhancement and recovery and um, three things that can really define the mature recovery, which is mental peace, physical well-being, and personal productivity. And before I cut you off there for the commercial, you were going to give us an example, Dr. Barthwell. Oh, yeah. So... Um I had this. I worked for Tra- Task, which uh, is now treatment um, for special clients, but it used to be for uh, street crime. So it's a, a criminal justice-based program to help people get into recovery. And I had a guy that I was seeing at the day reporting center who had a friend who had um, gone to jail. He had taken the full rap on something that they had done together. And so this friend was very, very meaningful to him because he had avoided having to go to jail because his friend took the responsibility for something they did together and he went to jail. And the guy was really struggling to do well and I knew he wanted to, but from time to time he would come up positive for illicit drug use. And, you know, we'd ask, well, what happened? And he'd say, well, you know, I ran into Johnny and Johnny needed me to give him a ride over to, you know, somewhere to cop his drugs. And then, you know, he had him in the car and I ended up doing them with him. And it's like a trigger for me, but I can't refuse Johnny because of what he did for me. And I, we were starting to t- target with him, well, you know, Johnny is not good for your recovery. And at some point, you, you're not going to be able to hang with him. And, you know, you really need to be honest with Johnny about what you're trying to do. And you know how we always say that if you are uh, have an addiction, you have a negative effect on so many people. But I always like to emphasize that if you're in recovery, you have a positive effect on so many more than them. The people around you start being able to sleep at night when you get into treatment and start making a commitment to, to recovery. You know, there's an extended group of people in your family who look to you as an example of recovery. And then there's this, the work that you do in 12-step in how you bring this message to other people. And I said, you know, you just need to have an honest conversation with Johnny about what you're trying to do and how it's not good for you to engage with him in ways like this. One day he came in and he said, you know, he was really struggling with things and that he had finally had this conversation with Johnny and he had just made the decision that he couldn't be among his peers that he ran with because it was too hard on his own recovery. And it's that kind of recognition that you're wanting to see as somebody moves from abstinence into recovery. They start to, one, the fight goes out of them, and they stop fighting the uh, professional guidance that they're getting, and they also start making decisions that are responsible towards their own recovery and may not be driven by um, some things that happened in the past. And I totally get when somebody takes a hit like that for you that you owe them a lot, but he was giving his life over, and it was almost what he was willing to give up was worse than if he'd had to spend time in jail because he was giving up his abstinence and his recovery, and it was threatening his being free if he had shown up positive on another drug test. So, Mary, well, yeah, we talked before the break about the three to five things that you do that bring you joy and pleasure. What are your three? Um, I like photography. I like to take pictures. I love to read. Um, I like to travel. And um, I love spending time with my dog and walking with my dog. Nice. So you got uh, an array of things. And that's one of the things that when I'm talking to patients, I'll assess whether they have that. So you've got there. There are some other things that I do to assess whether somebody is in the coming in phase, looking inward, or looking outward phase. Um, You know, you can assess their involvement with care. You can assess the quality of their abstinence. You can 
assess their respect for the treatment process. You can assess whether they're accountable or you can assess how deeply they're engaging family or support. Let me give you an example around involvement. Somebody who is just there, you know, their, their feet are coming, but their mind and heart not showing up. They're attending a minimal number of sessions. We see it on the Outer Banks when we have to fight with somebody to get up and come over, get up out of bed in the morning and come. They're there in treatment. They're doing more than they were when they weren't in treatment, but they're not fully involved. Um, they, uh, a deeper level involvement is that they start to discuss the consequences of their drug use in the sessions. And a deeper level still is when they discuss their personal issues in the group or identify interpersonal issues which may be blocking their progress in treatment. So they're having a problem with their peer, and they're willing to talk about it, take a risk and talk about it. Um, somebody who is just abstinent, the lowest rung of the ladder, isn't using drugs, but somebody who is uh, more abstinent is avoiding behaviors which will increase their risk of drug, and somebody who is at the highest rung on that ladder, ladder is not seeking prescription drugs. Um, somebody who is respecting the process might learn the code of ethics and uh, uh, solicit support, but when they're more deeply engaged, their behavior becomes consistent with that code of effort. They offer support to others, and they also identify behaviors which create interpersonal conflict because if you're having interpersonal conflict with your peers, your peers can't help you. Um, and then accountability. They may sign a treatment contract when they come in or articulate the expectations of treatment, but after they've been there a while, they're going to identify the consequences of their use. They're going to identify how their own behavior impacts others, and they also might identify how their behavior contributes to interpersonal conflict outside of treatment. And, you know, finally, uh, people who are really engaged in treatment uh, look to reduce the number or frequency of enabling behaviors from their loved ones. But somebody who's just come into treatment, they're using their loved ones to help them escape treatment. So we look at this encouraging the involvement. People who've just come into treatment who are at the lowest rung on the ladder might actually pull the, the, the contract that they have with us to talk to their loved ones so their loved ones can't be brought in as allies to keep them there. People who really want recovery are finding, are confronting their loved ones about their own behavior and telling their loved ones, you need to go to Al-Anon because I'm working hard to get my recovery, but you're undermining me through these old behaviors. And as I'm changing, I want you to change too. Do you see how we use this process and these phases to determine where someone is along that continuum between abstinence and recovery? Yes, and it makes so much more sense than some of the canned things that we currently use. I, I was saying to you during the break that wouldn't it be great if all treatment centers focused treatment around mental peace, physical well-being, and personal productivity. Um, and you mentioned that at uh, Two Dreams you have done that, but you're certainly in the minority um, of treatment programs. Right, because so many of them are just see themselves as a place for you to dry out or see them as a place to interrupt your using, but we actually have the luxury of being so small that not only do we talk about individualized care, but we intentionally individualize care, and we're looking beyond our services. In fact, a good 60% of people who come to us go to some other residential form of care afterwards. Now, that's not the case for people who don't need it, but again, we focused on the reluctant to recover, so they're not going to get the significant shifts in the way in which they live in the world with just a three-month episode of care. They're going to need can, more than that. 
How can people contact you or, or Two Dreams if they want to know more? Yep, they can call us at 708-613-4750. Again, that's 708-613-4750. That's our switchboard for all of our services. Or they can go online to www.2TWODREAMS, plural, two dreams, plural, dot com, and it will take you either to our Outer Banks site or our Chicago site, and you can write us directly through our webpage. And you can also Thank write you. me through that. Great. Thank you so much for um, taking the time. I know you're very busy to spend this hour with us and, and educating our listeners. My pleasure. Thank you. You're most welcome. Have a great week, everyone. We appreciate you joining us today for one hour at a time. Successful recovery from a substance abuse problem or mental illness depends on education and support of loved ones. Thank you for being that support system. Be sure to tune in next week for another hour of education and compassion. One hour at a time. We'll see you next week.